Well, this morning, we start a journey through the book of Romans, a book that I know will change our church. I believe we're a solid church already, but I know that hearing expositions on Romans, going through a book as weighty as this, will change each of us. And I know people will come over the years and join us, and they'll even say, I came to this church when you were in this chapter of Romans. This is really a a personal goal for me as well in ministry to be doing an expository preaching series on the book of Romans. If you're new with us, I'll just define expository preaching for you. It means the man of God opening the word of God and expounding its truth according to the proper interpretation. It's not a quick series where we're done in a few weeks. We're going to open up each passage and, and look at it and see what it has to say about us, about God, about the gospel, about our lives. And the goal of that is so that the people of God are built up and edified. I'm going to go passage by passage, sometimes in the beginning, just just word by word, and open that up and look at what that means for us. And of course, that's what God designed it to do, to change us, to transform us. Now, as we begin Romans, I have to tell you, is a huge landmark for our church and for my ministry. Uh, It it is the Mount Everest of the New Testament. Some would even say the Mount Everest of the Bible. You have the the Himalayas, right? The great books of the Bible that everybody loves. You know, Isaiah, Genesis, the Gospel of John, Revelation. But Romans often stands as the Mount Everest of the Himalayas. It's the highest peak. It's weighty theology and, and weighty practical living that Paul is going to teach us about. So for the next five years or so, Uh, We're going to be opening up this book, and we're going to be looking at it, and we're going to be going through the argument that the Apostle Paul is making. And we're going to hopefully see, some of us for the first time maybe, what God wants us to know about Him, about the Gospel, about Christ. And you can already get a taste of of where we're headed. Let me read the first paragraph to you here, Romans 1, uh, 1 through 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you are, also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, call the saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How much did Paul pack into seven verses? We could really spend a year like Martin Lloyd-Jones did just in chapter one alone. We won't do that, Lord willing, but there's so much to see here. And you'll notice it comes at the very beginning of Paul's letters some introductory information, and that's really what today's sermon is about. We're going to take the big picture view. We're going to take an overview of Romans, because it's important to back out and see the forest before we go in and start looking at the trees. Why, though, is Romans the first epistle of Paul's letters? Because you have the Gospels. They record the life and the teaching of Christ. You have the book of Acts, which records how the church got started and how it grew and how it spread and how the gospel went out. And then right after that, you have the book of 
Romans. And it's not the oldest letter that Paul wrote. It wasn't one of the first ones that he wrote. We know with some certainty that James wrote his letter, the book of James, much earlier. And even of Paul's letters, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and 1st and 2nd Corinthians came before he wrote Romans. So the way our Bible's organized is not necessarily based, especially in Paul's letters, on chronological order. So why is it here? Why is it at the beginning? Well, some would argue because it's the longest, and it definitely is. If you do a word count, and they have these charts on the internet that you can look up word count for each book of the Bible, it is the longest of Paul's letters, and they go down and from the longest to the shortest. But also many have argued, and I believe there's some reason to argue this, that it was placed first in the order of the books of the Bible because it has the biggest foundation, the biggest doctrinal foundation of Paul's letters. It doesn't include every aspect of theology. He'll touch on the end times more in First and Second Thessalonians. He'll touch on the doctrine of Christ more in Philippians. But of all his letters, Romans lays the broadest foundation and the deepest foundation for an overall doctrine of Christianity. In fact, the great commentator Matthew Henry said, it's placed first, not because of the priority of its date, but because of the superlative excellency of the epistle. So if it is weighty, if it is deep, it ought to be preached. And it ought to be heard. And it ought to be followed as we read about things to believe and things to live out here in the book of Romans. So as I said, what I want to do today is give you the big picture. And I want to give you four reasons why we need the book of Romans today. There's a lot of reasons you could probably think of of why we need this book, why it should be preached in the churches, why you as a Christian should be reading it, taking it in. But I'm going to give you four, three of which will come from the book itself, and the first one will come from church history. So why do we need the book of Romans today? Well, first of all, the book of Romans has impacted the church throughout two millennia. And you say, hold on, Pastor, I thought we're looking at the Bible itself. And normally we are. We're looking right at the text. And sometimes I give you some, some quotes from church history. This first point right here, though, is all about what people have done and said about the book and done with the book throughout church history. And you need to know this. Why? Because it informs us today. In fact, you're probably going to hear what I have to say about this and wonder why Romans isn't taught more and why people skip over Romans. Or if they do preach through it, they skip chapters like chapters 8, chapter 9. I've literally read commentaries and heard sermons where they get to chapter 8 and 9 and they just say, this is too hard for us to understand. We're going to jump to chapter 10. Romans is a great book and it's had a profound impact on the church since the apostles went out and planted churches. In fact, John MacArthur even said about Romans, he said, it's amazing if you just go back in history and see how the book of Romans affected people's lives. The greatest reformations and revivals that we know about were results of the power of this book. Some of the greatest reformations, some of the greatest revivals are tied back to someone reading this book and suddenly seeing something. God revealed something to them here in these pages they did not see before. We heard this morning from Michael Dennis about how the Reformation never got to Latin America. And I'm sure when they get there, they're going to be hearing about doctrine from a book like the book of Romans. Romans has impacted the church throughout two millennia. As far as we know, the very first whole commentary on any book of the Bible, of the New Testament, I should say, of any book of the New Testament, the first commentary was written on the book of Romans, about 246 AD. 
So it was such an important book. An early pastor, an early theologian decided he would write a whole commentary on the book itself. The early expositor, John Chrysostom, who was called the golden mouth. Chrysostom means golden mouth. And he was an ancient uh, preacher who, who was known for his expository sermons. And he said about this book, Romans is unquestionably the fullest, deepest compendium of all sacred foundational truths. The fullest, the deepest. I just want to go through some of the people from church history in this first point, just to let you know how impactful the book has been, what it's done. And we see very early in the church, in the 300s with John Chrysostom, that he's already saying it's the fullest, it's the deepest. Then later we get to someone like Augustine, who lived in the 400s A.D., And Augustine was an unbeliever. He was a pagan. He tried to follow the ways of the world to become more advanced in the Roman Empire. And one day he had heard a preacher proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming sin in our hearts. And he was convicted. And he went out to his garden, out to his backyard. And he was torn up because of that. And he went back inside and he he thought, well, maybe I can look in the Bible. And he heard a child singing outside the window. Take up and read. A little song that the Latin kids would sing about reading your books. Take up and read. Take up and read. Tole lege. So he said, well, I guess I'll pick up my Bible and read. So he just opened it like sometimes we do, right? It's not the best way to read your Bible. Just let's see where I land here. That's what he did. And he landed on Romans 13, 13 and 14. And it's about Christian living. It's about holiness. And he was in great agony. But when he read that verse, he said, I I picked it up. I read it. And he said, I neither wish nor needed to read any further. After just two verses. He says at once, with the last words of that sentence, that verse, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart and all the shadows of doubt were dispelled. He had peace with God. From reading one verse in Romans, that was just about holy living. One of the greatest early fathers in the church, Augustine, was converted from a verse out of Romans. The same thing happened with Martin Luther, the great reformer. Luther started the Reformation in Germany, in Europe. He was an unbeliever. He was tied up in works in the Roman Catholic Church. He was a monk. He thought if I could just be better and better and better each day and tear myself up over my sin and beat myself, then somehow maybe God will accept me. And he really hated the idea of the righteousness of God in the Bible. He hated that idea because he knew he could never be righteous. And then one day he's reading Romans and he's reading chapter 1 and he gets down to verse 17, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And it completely changed his life. Suddenly he was saved. Suddenly he said it was like the gates of paradise open. So later, as he's teaching other reformed pastors how to go about teaching the book of Romans, he said this epistle is in truth the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. It would be quite proper for a Christian not only to know it by heart, word for word, but also to study it daily, for it is the soul's daily bread. They were so happy to have the Bible in their own language in the Reformation that they would take it home and read it every day. A book like this, they would memorize it word for word. And they would treasure it in their hearts. Later, John Calvin, another great reformer, the theologian of the Reformation, he says the excellency of this epistle can never be sufficiently appreciated. Once we know the contents of this letter well, the doors are open to the greatest treasures of the Scriptures. 
the doors will be open. The greatest treasures of the scriptures. It's not to say you shouldn't read the rest of the Bible. But if you've been a Christian a while and your foundation isn't solid, or maybe it's not very built up, this is a great book to lay a good foundation. Just to start on, even today, reading over and over. William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English, a man who was burned at the stake for translating the Bible, he said, no man can truly read it too often. Talking about the book of Romans. No man can read it too often or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. And the more groundly it is searched, the more precious things are found in it. So great a treasure of spiritual things lie hidden within. This is amazing. These great men of the Reformation. Hidden treasures in the scripture. They're looking at it and saying we ought to know it. A Puritan in the 17th century said the epistle of Romans is like to nothing less than paradise itself. Enclosing the quintessence and perfection of saving doctrine. And he says the 8th chapter. It's like a conduit conveying the waters of life. Rather, it is the tree of life in the midst of the garden. They're not worshiping the Bible. They're worshiping the God of the Bible. They're saying the Bible is so awesome because God designed it to teach us, to show us, to lift us up and our praise to him. And we could just go on. I'm just scanning church history here to give you an idea of how important this book has been as churches have been planted, as the gospel has gone out. And especially especially as Christians have been built up in the faith. You'll see in Romans that it's not light. It's not something that will just make you feel good and you go home for the rest of the week thinking that you got a pat on the back. In the first few chapters, we're going to find out that Paul really tears us up. He makes us realize the sinner that we truly are or have been before we were saved. The preacher John Wesley in the 18th century, he was a great English preacher. Part of his conversion story was that he could not tell if he was a believer or not. He grew up in the Anglican church. He did not know if he was a Christian. He even went to America in the 1700s as a missionary to convert the American Indians. And he went back home after that mission, and he still didn't know if he was really a Christian. He probably wasn't a Christian. So he stumbles into a a church one day, an Anglican church, and they just happened to be reading not even... The Gospel of Romans, just Martin Luther's introduction on the commentary he wrote to the Romans. As any good preacher would do, Luther put in a lot of doctrine right there in the introduction. And here's what happened with Wesley. He got saved. He says that at the moment he heard it read, he knew he was saved and converted to Christ. He he says about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me, he says, that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin. One of the most famous preachers in English language history, John Wesley, converted. So we have Augustine converted, a reading out of Romans. We have Luther who started the Reformation, and and all of us here are Protestants. And we go back even to Luther here, and he was reading. And then John Wesley and we come up to more modern times. And we come to a great preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Lloyd-Jones showed up in a, in a Bible-believing church. He showed up, he got hired there in a Bible-believing congregational church in London. And they had been going through doctrine just in general. 
And they said, can you come on Friday nights and can you teach us the book of Romans? Because there's no better place to get your doctrine than right out of the Bible, right out of a book, one book, and the book of Romans. So he called them lectures, but if you listen to them or you read them, they're really sermons. They're really better sermons than, than most preachers can preach today. And he said they were lectures, but they were there to worship God. So they had the music, they sung before, they prayed and everything. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he preached 372 sermons on this book over 13 years. And he never finished. He got to chapter 14 and in about the middle, and he got cancer and had to retire, and he died a few years later. But you can pick those up today. You can get the whole set if you want and read through them. Very practical. And he said that it was one of the greatest epistles that he's ever read. He said, it's above all else something that deals with the fundamentals. And if you look at the history of the church, so even he's pointing this out, I think you will see that has borne out time and time again to be one of the most important books of the Bible. There isn't a sense which he says we can say quite truthfully that the epistle of the Romans has possibly played a more important and more crucial part in the history of the church than any other single book in the whole Bible. Just like MacArthur said. If you look at the Reformations, if you look at revival. Revival is when a bunch of people think they're Christians and suddenly they actually become Christians. And the churches are full. And it spreads even in different areas of the world. He says, tied back to things taught from this book. More modern, J.I. Packer, a great theologian who just passed away, I think last year. He said, all roads in the Bible lead to Romans. Don't they lead to Christ? Why is he saying that? Well, guess who the focus in the book of Romans is on Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, especially what he's done for us. When we started the church, we spent three and a half years in the gospel of Luke. And that was all about what Christ said and what he did for us at the end of Luke. It tells us what he did for us. He died on the cross. He was raised again. A letter like Romans is going to look back to that and teach us what that means for us now on this side of the cross. So Packer said all roads in the Bible lead to Romans. All views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there's no telling what may happen. Because it's the Mount Everest, you get up there, and then you can look out on all the mountaintops, and you can see them better. So for a New Covenant believer to read this book allows us to see the rest of the Bible better. John Stott, another English preacher from the 1900s, said it is the fullest, plainest, grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. I could just keep going on and on. John Piper recently, uh, John Piper was in ministry, and a few years ago he preached 225 sermons on Romans, and it took him about eight years. There's so much to say about what this book has done in church history. But I'll just cut it there and tell you my personal story. I was a believer for many years, and I'd never been taught doctrine, though. And one day, I came across this word Calvinism, and I came across this doctrines of grace. And I tried my best to disprove all that I was reading. And they kept citing the book of Romans. So I would go, and I would read what they said, and there it was right there in Romans. Romans 8, Romans 9, what do you do with all of that? So I ended up just taking my family through the book of Romans. It was the first book we went through in family worship. We would sit down in the evenings. The kids were little. They were too little to even understand usually what I was reading. And I didn't even know what I was doing back then because I had no training. I would just read the book out loud and I might say a couple of things about it. And we just kept on doing that for about a year or so. And that really impacted my wife and I's thinking. We came to realize 
No, what a lot of these things we had heard are true about the doctrines of grace. They are right here in Scripture. And so much more than just the doctrines of grace in Romans. I think it's true what another scholar said recently. He said, beware when you read Romans, anything can happen. Your theology should be changed. It should be shaped when you read the Bible. And as you hear this, and as you read it on your own, as you pray that God would do a work in your heart, I think your beliefs will be changed. And certainly the way you live your life for Christ should be changed. Even unbelievers. Even unbelievers have recognized how great this letter is. Uh, One uh, famous poet, an English poet, Coleridge, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, said, it's the profoundest book in existence. An unbeliever. So believers ought to look at this and say, God, open my eyes so that I can see even more because there's so much to see here. Let's move forward now and actually begin to look at certain verses. Number two, the second reason we need Romans today is it was written to the church and for the church. Romans was written to the church and for the church. This was an actual letter written to an actual church. And then it was put in our Bibles because it was Scripture and it is Scripture. And we can still read it and apply it today. God is so wise that he can write something from an apostle to a church in real time and it still applies 2,000 years later. So let's understand some things about the church in Rome before we get into the exposition next week of verse 1. To the church in Rome, he says. He's writing to the church in Rome. The church in Rome, not, not the people of Rome. There was a lot of people in Rome. To believers in Rome the city of Rome, was the nerve center of a vast empire. The Roman Empire extended from southern Britain into Gaul, modern-day France. It encompassed all of Spain, North Africa, all the way west to Syria, and from Germany all the way to the south of Egypt. Rome was located on the banks of the Tiber River. You could get to it from the Mediterranean Sea, uh, sailing 15 miles upriver there. The city in Paul's day is estimated to contain at least one million people, maybe up to four million. And the reason there's such a range there is because about half the population was slave labor. They had captured slaves in the north in Germany. They had captured slaves in the east. And they'd brought them back to work for families in Rome. And anywhere from one million up to four million people. Paul is sending a letter, and he's going to tell him he wants to visit there, the largest city in the world at the time. And it would be the largest city in the Western world up until the 1800s when London, England, finally hit a million people. Now, there was also a large Jewish community there. And this is going to be important as Paul's going to get into the letter because he's going to talk to both Jews and Gentiles that are believers in the church. Of those million to four million people, 40,000 of them were Jews. They had been dispersed, of course, uh, much longer in the history of the Bible. Uh, They had been dispersed in the Old Testament when God brought judgment upon uh, Israel, and they were taken away first by the Assyrians, and then the south was taken away by the Babylonians. And even later, people continued to move around the empires of the day. And so there are many Jews who ended up in Rome. In fact, At one point, the emperor of Rome, he wanted them out of the city, so he built a neighborhood for the Jews across the river so that they could live there. Let's look at the church in Rome, though. It was written to the church and for the church. Now, no one knows exactly how the church in Rome started, but it's not planted by Paul, which is very unique because all of Paul's letters are written to churches that he himself planted. 
except he did not plant the church in Rome. He wrote the letter to them saying that he would like to come and meet them. Look at chapter 1 and verse 11. He says here, For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. He longs to go there and see them face to face. The idea is he's never seen them before. And the spiritual gift here is the teaching that he's going to impart to them. He wants to teach them further about the doctrine of salvation. And the doctrines that he's going to now lay out in this letter so they can read it and study it before he even gets there. He says, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Then in verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you. He's never gotten to go, but he's hoped to go there and have been prevented thus far. God's providence has made it so that Paul wasn't able to get there yet, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. He's never been there. They're not his direct fruit, meaning he didn't go there and start the church, but he'd like to go there and bring up and raise some fruit some mature disciples, and I'm sure evangelize the lost while he's there in Rome. So who started the church in Rome? If you talk to a Roman Catholic, they will say that Peter started the church in Rome. They will say that Peter was the first pope, and it goes all the way back, the line of popes, all the way back to Peter. Except that the Bible never says anything about Peter being in Rome. There's nothing in the book of Acts about Peter going to Rome. If Paul wrote the letter... To the Romans here, you think he would mention Peter if Peter was there or Peter started the church. Now later, church history tells us Peter does go to Rome and so does Paul. And they both get martyred there. They both get killed there. So they did end up in Rome. But there's no evidence whatsoever that Peter started the church in Rome. So how did it start? What happened? Well, go to Acts chapter 2. Go back to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to see, I think, a hint of how the church got started there. Acts chapter 2 and verse 10. How could the gospel reach Rome all the way from Israel, all the way from Jerusalem, and a healthy church is planted there? Because Paul doesn't, he doesn't correct a lot of false doctrine in Romans. He's just building them up. We don't even see the kind of problems we see like in Galatia, for example. When Paul writes Galatians, he's upset because of the false doctrine that's come into the church. We don't see that in Romans. They seem to be somewhat solid. Acts 2.10, talking about all the people that were saved. So the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches this great sermon, and Jews were gathered there from all parts of the empire, from Phrygia, from Pamphylia, from Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. These were Gentiles who worshiped with the Jews, who believed in the Jewish God, who believed in Yahweh, and they learned about him from the Jews and worshipped God. They came from Rome on the, to be at Pentecost, the, the feast, there in Jerusalem. They heard this sermon. They were converted. Then they go back home, like everyone did that was there. And what would you do? If you were the only group of believers, and you go back to the largest city in the known world at the time, what would you do? Well, you'd start gathering together. You would start reading whatever Old Testament books you had. He would form up a church. And so that is very likely how this church got started. The people went back and they planted a church. And it was mostly Jews. So the church starts out as being very Jewish there in the Roman history of the church. Now later, a church father in the 4th century would say 
that the early church was founded by Jewish Christians. And he even said that in the very beginning it was somewhat legalistic because they were Jews and they tried to bring some of the Judaizing influence into the church in Rome. Now let's look at 16.7. Romans 16.7. And he's going to tell us here that there were some Christians that are that have been Christians longer than Paul. Romans 16.7 he says, Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen, meaning they're Jews. Not that, not that they're part of his immediate family, but he calls the Jews his kinsmen, because Paul was a Jew. And my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles. So all the apostles know these people, who also were in Christ before me. So it could just be that these people were part of the original church plant. And they'd been there longer than Paul had even been a Christian. Long before he was even in Christ. So we see Jews helping to, to get the church going there. But of course, Gentiles would have heard the gospel. They would have been converted. They would have come in. So you have this mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And whenever you have that happen, there's going to be questions. What about the Old Testament? What about the law? And Paul's going to address this later in the book of Romans. But something interesting happened in history that we know about in 49 AD. The emperor at the time, Emperor Claudius, said that he was tired of the Jews fighting. He was tired of them arguing, and they were breaking out into brawls in the city. And so he expelled them from Rome. He said, get out. Now, you can imagine that some stayed and hid out for a while, and others left the city. In fact, if you go back to Acts, go to Acts 18.2, we see this event mentioned in Scripture. That there's a problem in Rome. It doesn't really tell us why in Acts. Uh, It doesn't give us a lot of information. It does tell us why. But Acts 18.2 says that he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, there's the emperor Claudius, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul is in Corinth and he meets up with a man and a woman, solid believers that will come up often in Paul's letters, and they came from Rome, which means they were believers in Christ and they left because they were also Jewish. All the Jews had to get out of Rome. Now it's very interesting what the Jews were fighting about. A secular historian from ancient times says that the Jews were fighting about some man named Crestus. Some man named Crestus, we would say with an E, that's how he spelled it. But most scholars think he misspelled it. He didn't understand who it was. It was actually Christus, Christ. So the Jews were having these debates and even brawls because some believed in this man named Christ and followed him and others did not. So you even see from secular history this tension that was going on amongst the Jews there as Christians were probably being persecuted uh, by the Jewish group and the synagogues there. Well, Claudius does eventually die and a man named Nero takes over as emperor. Nero does some bad things later in his time as an emperor, but early on, he let the Jews come back. So now the Jews have been away. They've come back. Many of those would be Jewish Christians. So again, we have the Gentile church, which has been growing for four or five years. And the Jews come back that are believers and now now mixed together once again. So you can understand the tension that might be there. Not a lot, not, not, not false teaching, but Paul's going to have to deal with this idea of how do we live as Christians? Do, do we obey the law of Moses? Do we obey the food commands? Paul's got to at least address that because he knows there's got to be problems there. The church was a church with real people. And it was a church with real problems. And in any church, everybody's not 100% on the same page on every minor little preference. 
And so while there's not a huge issue Paul addresses, he's going to address some of the uh, more secondary issues that we might say, but they're going to affect the church, so he wants to say something about them. They need to understand more about the gospel and how it impacts their lives. Number three, the third reason. So we've got just how it's impacted church history. And then we've got also the fact that it was written to a church, and hopefully you understand now more about that church. Here's where we get more theological. Romans was given or written for a God-given purpose. Romans was written for a God-given purpose. Well, all the Bible was written for a God-given purpose. So it's not just as if Romans is the only one. But you have to understand, this is not a letter that God wrote directly to you. This didn't arrive at your address. This was written through an apostle that God moved by the Holy Spirit's power to write these words and send to the church that we were just looking at. God had a purpose in mind. Paul had a purpose in mind because God had moved in his heart to do this. In fact, we read later, Paul will write in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All scripture, including the book of Romans, including the Old Testament books that are hard to read, including the book of Numbers and Leviticus, that you, you're reading in your yearly Bible reading plan, wondering why is this here? Well, God had a purpose for it. There was a reason that it was there then. There's a reason it's still there today. And God had a purpose for the book of Romans. This really settles the issue. There's, there's this issue out there that, that liberal Christians say that we ought to look at the words of Jesus, the words in red, but not the words of Paul. In fact, they'll say Paul's doctrine is too hard. We'll even see this very early in Christianity because Peter writes that some people take Paul's words. This is the Apostle Peter talking about his fellow Apostle Paul. And he says they twist Paul's words. They're hard to understand, Peter says, and people then twist them to their own desires. Well, that's what happens even today. We have to look at the words of Jesus. They're kind. They're loving. Jesus is love. But Paul, he's hard. So they lower the words of Paul. Jesus suddenly becomes the only scripture of the Gospels. And then suddenly Paul's letters are not even read. They're not studied. They're not preached. And this settles it. I mean, Paul was given a message. Every letter that's recorded in the Bible was a God-given message, a God-given purpose. So why did Paul write this letter? What's the reason? What's the purpose? Well, we know that he writes it from Corinth. If you go to Romans 16, you'll see that. Where is he writing from? He says, Romans 16, 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is in Cancrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. A Cancrea was a, a city right next to Corinth. It was the port city for Corinth. The, the book that the first and second Corinthians was written to. A, a church that Paul planted. Corinth had a vibrant church, a solid church. And Paul was staying there. In fact, look at Romans 16, 23. He says, Gaius, host to me. So there's a man named Gaius where Paul's at there in Corinth. And he's hosting him. And to the whole church greets you. So he's saying, Gaius greets you. Who is this guy? Gaius. Go forward now to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 14. Very next letter in your Bible. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Because they're having arguments about, oh, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. He says, thank God I baptized none of you except these two guys, Crispus and Gaius. In Corinth, there's a man named Gaius. 
And he says in Romans 16, I'm staying with Gaius. So we know he's writing from Corinth. Uh, he's not actually writing the words out. He's not using the pen. He's speaking them. And somebody else is recording it. Uh, Romans 16, 22. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. So Paul is speaking it. And then a man, a Christian, a believer in Corinth named Tertius is writing it out with a pen. Because you had to have nice, pretty handwriting. And it needs to be easily read by those who received it. And so you had scribes who could write well. And Paul is saying, Tertius is writing this to you. Now, based on the timeline, if you go through the book of Acts, if you compare the names mentioned there with secular history and what's been recorded in the Latin and, and Roman uh, records, Paul's writing around 56 or 57 AD. So he spent three years teaching believers in Ephesus, building them up. Three years. We think, you know, if I can just read the Bible this year by myself, then I'll be built up, and that's true. But the Apostle Paul spent three years in Ephesus. And then by the time you get to Revelation, it says they've lost their first love. So how much constant building do we need as Christians? He's there in Ephesus for three years. Then he's in Corinth for three months. And he's on his third missionary journey. He's about to go back to Jerusalem. That's when he writes this letter. Now he says, I hope to go to Rome. He does eventually get to Rome, if you read the book of Acts. Because he's arrested and taken to Rome. This is how God often works in our life. We make plans and they don't always work out exactly what we think God should do. We, God doesn't operate on our timeline. But eventually Paul did get to Rome. He got there in chains. He had to be shipwrecked. He got bit by vipers that were supposed to kill him. But he got there, didn't he? He got there. So why did he write it? He wrote it from Corinth around 57 A.D., and he gives really three reasons in the letter itself as to the purpose. And, and there's, it's a threefold purpose. He says, first of all, to encourage the Romans. He wants to encourage them in the faith so they'll be his sending church and support him in planting churches in Spain. He wants them to be a sending church. Let me come there is what he's saying so that you can then send me out to Spain. Look at fifteen twenty, chapter 15, verse 20. And this is an important concept for us as we've been having missionaries come. And our goal is to send out church planters or to help send out church planters. Here's what Paul the Apostle says in 1520. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. He wants to go somewhere where no one's been. He wants to go to the edge of the Roman Empire. Now look at verse 24. Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you. When I have first enjoyed your company for a while, I want to be there for a while. I want to get to know you. And then I want you to send me out to Spain. Help me get there. Support me. Pray for me. Let me build you up in the faith. And in turn, you're going to send me out, he says, to plant churches in Spain. We have no record in the Bible that he ever got to Spain. I think he probably did before Second Timothy was written. But it's not recorded in Scripture that he got there. He intended to go there, and he intended to stop off at Rome before going. The second purpose that he's writing is to establish the Roman Christians, both Jew and Gentile, he says, in his gospel, in my gospel. He wants to build them up in the gospel. He's not saying 
you bunch of unbelievers, I'm coming to preach the gospel. He's saying, you're believers, and I'm coming to preach the gospel to you and build you up in it. And the whole letter really lays all of that out. They were Gentiles mostly. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He felt like he should help them. He should build them up. The other apostles were too, mostly the Jewish people originally. But Paul was designated by Christ to go out to the Gentiles. And Rome is the capital of the Gentile world. And so he felt like he should help them. He should build them up. So he hoped they would encourage him to go to Spain, help him to Spain. But he also wants to build them up. Look at chapter 1 and verse 13. This is where he really gets into why he's writing the letter. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. I don't want you to be caught off guard, uncertain, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit. He wants to build them up, produce fruit in his ministry, even as among the rest of the Gentiles, because he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And he says, and I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish. The Greeks were the educated pagans, and the barbarians were the people who weren't an educated people, even though they were somewhat, not like the Greeks, though. And he says, I'm, I'm going to the Gentiles, wise and foolish. The Greeks are considered wise, the barbarians are considered foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Keep that in mind as we go through this book. This is a gospel being preached to believers. What does that mean about us as Christians? Do we need to hear the gospel every day? Do we need to not just know the basics of the gospel, but everything revealed in Scripture about the gospel? Do we need to ask ourselves, how does election relate to the gospel? How does total depravity relate to the gospel? How does our everyday Christian life relate to the gospel? That's what Paul's going to show us. And ultimately, his third purpose for writing was to glorify God and exalt Jesus Christ in the letter. Look at 1136. Romans 1136. Right in the sort of the middle here. He, he just opens up and starts praising God. And he says, For from him, talking about God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's almost as if, you know, he says amen and that would be the end. Now he goes into the rest of his letter, which is about how to live. But that's how he closes out the doctrinal portion of the letter. And that's not all he has to say about that. Now go to the very end, 1627. This is how he closes out the whole letter. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. So twice he's making the point, this is to God, this is to Christ, this is to glorify him. That's why he's writing the letter. So why does Paul write it? To glorify God, to establish and build up the Roman Christians, and to encourage them to be his sending church as he goes to plant churches in Spain. Number four, number four, why we need the book of Romans today. And this is the biggest point, but I'll have to go rather briefly because we are going to open up each of these as we go through the book. First, let's talk about the theme. What is the theme of Romans? What's the point? We know why he wrote it, but what's the theme he uses to do that? The purpose of the book we covered, what is his major theme in the book? Look at the chapter 1, verse 16. This is the theme verse, 1, 16, and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now he starts to explain a little bit about the gospel. In it, in the gospel, 
of the righteousness of God is revealed. You can see God's righteousness in this thing called the gospel. And it's revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. He even backs it up with an Old Testament quote. And this is the verse I said that Martin Luther was saved as he was reading and understanding this. That's his theme, the gospel. He's not ashamed of it. He calls it the gospel of God. And he's not ashamed and he wants to go there and he wants to preach it to them and he wants to use that to build them up. And basically what he covers in the rest of the book is him preaching the gospel to believers. And he's going in depth. And he's building a strong foundation with it. And so how does he break this down? How does he go through the book? Let's look at an overall outline of the gospel of the book of Romans. An overall outline, the big picture. And I borrowed much of this from Douglas Moo's wonderful commentary on Romans. Uh, The major sections, how he breaks that down. The first thing is Paul's opening. For 17 verses, he goes through the opening of the letter. And that's really not that long if you read the rest of Paul's letters. He tells us about himself. He tells us who he's writing to. He gives thanks to God. And he tells us what his main theme in the letter will be. We just looked at that. He wants to bring the gospel to them. And we're going to start looking next week just at verse 1. And we'll look at who Paul is and what Paul tells us just in verse 1 about himself. Then after the opening, he gets right to the heart of the gospel. Right to the heart of the gospel. Justification by faith alone. That's from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 4, verse 25. So right in the middle of chapter 1, all the way through the end of chapter 4, it's all about justification by faith alone. That's the heart of the gospel. And we can't stop there. There's more coming after this in Romans. But this is the heart. This is the key to the gospel. But he doesn't start off with good news. He starts off with the bad news. So in chapter 1, verse 18, he starts laying out the bad news. Look at 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, Paul, that's just not making me feel very good there. Wrath of God? Are you talking about ungodliness? Aren't people good? Uh, Aren't people generally born good? I mean, that cute little baby that comes out, that's not a sinner, is it? Well, just wait till the baby gets about two, sometimes one, and you'll discover pretty quick that that little baby is a sinner too. He's born with a sin nature. And so Paul's going to open it up. He's going to talk about the pagans. He's going to talk about the Jews. He's going to say everyone is born in sin. Everyone is unrighteous when we stand before God. Whether you're a Jew or a pagan, you have nothing to compare to God in his righteousness. In other words, he tells the bad news first. You've got to tell the bad news before you get to the good news. The gospel is you're a sinner and you're lost without God's son, Jesus Christ. But he does get to that. He does get to that. Skip to chapter 3 and verse 21. He does get to the gospel. After he's laid out all of this information, all of this doctrine on how man is sinful. And we're going to look at that. It's going to take some time to go through all of that. And you're going to think, where's the good news? But here it is in 321. But now, now, he says, after Christ has come, now we have the good news. He says, apart from the law, 
the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been revealed. It was hinted at in the Old Testament. People looked forward to Christ in the Old Testament, but now it's been opened up. It's been shown. It's been revealed to the whole world. And it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. It was there, but now it's clearly seen. Even the righteousness of God through faith. It's through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. That's the key right there. You want to be right with God? You believe in Christ, his son. He's the Messiah. That's what Christ means. His name, his human name is Jesus. Everyone who believes receives the righteousness of God when they believe in Christ, when they have faith in Christ. That's the solution to the problem, the bad news that he's just been talking about in the previous parts of the book. And he says, for there's no distinction, whether Jew, whether, whether Gentile, it doesn't matter. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone. Everyone has sinned. And they all fall short. They continue to fall short. You've sinned in the past. You've sinned now. But you continue to fall short of the glory of God. If you are a believer, you can only be justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There is so much doctrine packed in this little paragraph. Verse 25, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Your Bible should say propitiation there. If it doesn't, it's time to get a new translation. That's a key theological word. Propitiation. An atoning sacrifice that, that basically satisfied the wrath of God. That's what propitiation means. There's no word for it other than this in English. So it needs to be there. It's not atonement necessarily. I mean, that's not a bad word, atonement. But propitiation is a better word for the Greek word underlying here. Satisfying God's wrath. In his blood, he died. And when we have faith in him, he is the satisfaction for us. God has a wrath against us that's been revealed. Paul covers that in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And now he says, look, Christ has paid that wrath. He's died for that wrath. If you have faith in him. And it's a demonstration. A demonstration means that he's showing people his righteousness through this. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over, it says in the past, he passed over the sins previously committed. Why did humanity continue to exist if they're so sinful? Because God was passing over. It doesn't mean when, once they die, they're not going to be punished. But it means that God didn't destroy humanity. He didn't zap them out of existence the day that Adam sinned. He continued to pass over it. He even gave the Jews the law so that they could do the sacrifices so they would continue through faith to do those sacrifices and he would pass over that sin that they did until Christ came. They were looking to Christ. Christ paid the penalty even for Old Testament saints as well. And he says in verse 26, for the demonstration, there it is again. He's showing everybody, he's demonstrating it to everybody of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just. God is perfectly just because he doesn't let anybody go free. Christ had to pay the penalty for them and the justifier. God's the one who does the actual work to pay for your sins of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, faith, righteousness, all of this terminology right here. This is the great justification by faith alone doctrine that's in the Bible, in Romans especially. Chapter 4 unpacks that talks about Abraham, how even Abraham was justified through faith alone in the Old Testament account. It tells us exactly how that happens. The third major movement, the third major part of Romans 
is going to give us assurance. There's assurance provided by the gospel. There's assurance provided by the gospel. It's still relevant. So we've been justified. Now what? Well, there's assurance because God has done something. And so that has effects in our life. And he starts off there in, in 5.1 and goes all the way through the end of chapter 8, 8.39. Just to give you a taste for it, let me read 5.1 and, and 2 as well. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith. It's a one-time thing. You don't continue to be justified. It's not like Roman Catholics teach where you have to spend your whole life doing all these things and maybe you're justified at the end. No, it's one time when you have faith. You've been justified once for all. You've been declared just. He says, having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's assuring. We have peace. We don't have to get up every day and worry. Are we going to lose our salvation? I was just talking to a brother the other day, and he said he grew up in a, in a culture where even the pastors were always beaten down because they didn't know today if they were going to be saved or lose their salvation and back and forth. When you wake up every day wondering if you're going to lose it, that's not peace with God. And he says, look, you can have peace with God through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace in which we stand. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. We sing praises to God. We exult in that. We're joyful because we know we have peace. And so he unpacks that all the way through the end of Romans 8. And he's even saying later there that by the Holy Spirit's power, no one can take you away from Christ. No one, as Jesus said, can snatch you out of his hands. If you're his, you can't fall away. Not demons. They can't take you away from Christ. They can't make you an unbeliever suddenly. And the government and no one can take you out of his hands. Well then, fourthly, the fourth part here of the book is the defense of the gospel. So there was the heart of the gospel. Then he assured us that we can have peace with God and there's effects of justification that go on, what we often call sanctification. And now he's going to defend that. And he's going to talk about election. He's going to talk about Israel. And he's going to talk about God's promises. Because the question comes up, this is great, Paul. You promised us all this stuff that God's going to do through Christ. But what about Israel? What happened to Israel? What happened to the Jews? Why are the Jews not believing? Why were they punished? And so he's going to tell us about that and he's going to talk about election. A hard doctrine for people to hear because it's not our natural tendency and a lot of churches don't teach it. They don't teach from this book, 9, 11 through 15. He says here, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice, that's election, the word there is election, God's election would stand not because of the works, but because of him who calls. Jacob was chosen over Esau, not because of works. I mean, Jacob was a scoundrel. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, because of God. He said to her, the older will serve the younger, talking about Jacob. He says, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? People are going to start complaining. There's no justice. Is there injustice with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, even in the Old Testament, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's God's choice. It's not your works. It's not up to you. You can't earn anything with God. Have faith in Christ. And then you look back and you say, okay, I've been saved. I am part of God's elect. 
Not because he looked forward in time and saw what you were going to do, because it was his choice, but you don't actually know it until you've been saved. Then you realize, oh, God chose me before anything, before creation. And then he gets into talking about Israel, and all the way through chapter 11, eventually he deals directly with why Israel was punished, and how as Gentiles we should not be prideful. And he says in 11.28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, God's election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Don't ignore chapter 11. Don't think that God's done with Israel. He tells us exactly what he's going to do with Israel in chapter 11. Then the last section there, the last major section, the transforming power of the gospel. From 12, 1, all the way through 15, verse 13. The gospel has transformed you. Now here's how you should live. Here's how you should live. And we're going to see there how God's grace to the believer totally transforms us. 12, 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, be by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, you've been saved. Now do something with that knowledge. God has given you a changed heart. Live it out. And he's going to spend the next few chapters doing that very thing, telling us how to live it out. He's going to talk to us in chapter 12 about our relation to God to ourselves and to others. In chapter 13, wow, this is very pertinent for us, how we're supposed to be subject to the government. We have to get into Romans 13 when we get there, definitely because there's a lot of misunderstanding on how we're to submit ourselves to the government. Chapter 14, how we deal with the weaker brethren, people who are somewhat legalistic, people who think we ought to live under the Old Testament law and other scruples that they have today. In chapter 15, how we're to live in relation to one another in the church. And then he closes it out with the last few verses, chapter 16, all the greetings to the people that he knows. So let me tell you real quickly, how can you benefit? How can you benefit most as you go through this series with us on the book of Romans? First of all, just be here. Be here. Be present. Get enough rest so that you're here and you're able to pay attention, and you're here in person hearing the word expounded, hearing the actual message in person. Yes, if you miss, I want you to hopefully listen to the recording if you happen to be away, but it's still not like being right here in the room. It's not like singing with us and, and praying with us and hearing the message proclaimed in person. So be here. Secondly, read Romans for yourself. Read it for yourself. Read it regularly. It wouldn't hurt you to read it one time a month. Just let it seep into your soul. Read ahead of where I'm at. See where I'm going. Think about the passage yourself. Make observations. Ask the text questions. Come and hopefully those questions will be answered. Read it with your family. Prepare your mind and hearts for Sunday morning by reading this book. Also, you can, number three, believe what it teaches. Just believe it and then live it out. When it's taught and explained and it's clearly right there in the Bible, and even though it's something you didn't grow up hearing, and even though the last church maybe didn't teach it, just believe God's word. If it's presented and interpreted rightly, believe it and live according to it. And also pray. The fourth way you can benefit is to pray. 
of this series, pray that it will glorify God ultimately. Pray that it will change your life. Pray that it will change you and your family. Pray that it will change even our church to be more and more like Christ. Pray that it would edify all the believers here and even convert unbelievers. I'll be praying for you as you grow. I'll be praying for even the unbelievers who come and hear the gospel proclaimed throughout Romans. I'll pray that we'll see some conversions, that we'll see some baptisms out here in our baptistry. And I pray most of all that our church body will be edified, that we'll be built up in the faith. Let's pray that now. Oh Lord, we do pray that you would build us up in this as we go through the book. Help us, Lord, to not be lazy Christians, to not be couch potato Christians. Help us to dive in, to get as much as as we can take, to drink out of this fire hydrant called the book of Romans. Help me as I proclaim it. Help me to study, to prioritize it, and to preach it to this congregation. Help each of our hearts to be more and more conformed to Christ's likeness and to love your word. In Jesus' name. Amen.